Hello, bonjour, ni hao. This is John James and welcome to another episode of Champagne Strategy, where it's my job to deconstruct world-class strategy, growth, marketing, and the latest tech with just a sprinkling of champagne. This is a show where we talk to the modest achievers and the less famous but more interesting people of the business world, many of whom keep a very low profile and some of which are even from the underground. One thing is for sure though, all of my guests are people who are senior achievers but still aren't afraid to occasionally get back onto the tools, into the weeds and get their hands dirty. They will often have battle scars to show skin in the game and money in play. My guest today is Catherine Rotowski. I just done my podcast list when I realized all of my interviewees were male except one. So after finding the male choice for this topic of customer experience, I went searching for someone just as talented and came across Catherine. She had the perfect vibe. She knew what she was talking about, wasn't afraid to tell it like it is, and had deep experience in multiple departments with multiple organizations. She wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty and ask the hard questions. And it's just a coincidence that she also happens to work with one of Australia's largest tech companies. Catherine is a Sydney local. She's a self-confessed coffee addict and enjoys wearing black. She's mostly worked in the field of IT program management in the banking and finance sector for the last 20 years. More recently though, she's decided to specialize in customer remediation after being exposed to the harsh realities her customers were exposed to within the sector. She also found it strange that customer outcomes weren't appearing in balanced scorecards. So she set her mind to doing something about it. A royal commission into the banking sector was the final straw. So she jumped across into the progressive world of tech quickly finding it aligned to her career principles of autonomy, mastery, purpose, and respect. On the weekend, you can find her riding motorbikes or having brunch, which she says is the best meal of the week. And you know what, I have to agree. In this interview, she doesn't hold back. She mixes top level strategic approaches with tactical suggestions, which you could implement immediately after listening to this episode. I challenge the fluffy nature of customer experience and she rebuts my facetious questions with very solid answers. Her approach is squarely focused on removing customer problems and costs, which she proves adds to considerable business value in a financial sense. We talk about many areas within the field of customer experience, from what it is to what it gets confused with, to creating a proper departmental function, what you should be measuring, how to measure it, getting executive buy-in, common misconceptions, how to avoid failing, and much, much more. The 30% rule is also very insightful and highlights some of the things that junior customer experience professionals may overlook. Find out how she reduced customer complaints by 160,000 per year and how she saved millions of dollars in costs with one simple change. She's led collaborative teams of over 50 people, programs of over 100, created improvements for employee groups of over 5,000 and solved problems for customer experience audiences of 10 million plus all with a focus on making every interaction as simple and as easy for the customer as possible. If you work in customer experience, are starting up a department, or just interested in this field, this episode is essential listening. And trust me, you won't be disappointed. If you don't learn something from this episode, you just haven't been listening. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Catherine Rutowski. Why are you talking to me? That's a good question. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> um, because I saw... <laughs> 
you, it was just by happenstance. I think I was just on LinkedIn and we were looking at, I was looking at a CX person. I was talking to Matt um, Wilkinson um, and then you came across somehow. We'd already been connected, I think. And then I was just going through my list and then I saw, oh, hey, you do CX. And I want to know more. I'm like, oh, maybe you'll be a good person to interview. So then we had a bit of a talk, a pre-interview and I was like, okay, you obviously know what you're talking about. So um, you'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, um, see that context set. That's a good context set to start. Exactly. So, um, why don't you tell me first? Let's go backtrack a bit. Um, I am drinking a very nice gin right now, which you can encourage me to buy. So, um, that's what we've got here. So, it's called um, Citadel. Uh, it's French. Can you give me some backstory why why you like this one and uh, why you suggested we we share it? Uh, well, it's a champagne podcast and I don't feel like champagne is the right thing to drink at this very moment in time because I'm very much into gin and I thought, well, French gin makes sense. Uh, the, um, the honest reason why I picked this gin is the bottle is extremely pretty and then I tasted it and thought that actually tastes very lovely and it's got interesting ingredients in it. It's got 14 ingredients, um, flowers being part of that, iris. I've tasted iris before and violets. Anyway, I thought it was quite fancy and that's why we're drinking it. Wow. And obviously there's a lot of health benefits with those um, herbs and um, botanicals, right? It's a health tonic. Um, I'm drinking mine with um, Mediterranean tonic and ruby red grapefruit, obviously, because it's super healthy then. I am, except I've got a lemon instead of the grapefruit. So, Um, yeah, it's really nice. I I did some um, tasting on this and... um, it's a juniper, juniper base. It tastes very strong of juniper, uh, maybe with some other grains on top of that. Uh, it has a slight sort of vodka, ethanol nuance to it, and then um, dry woody herbs with some, some nice sort of florals going on there as well, rosemary, thyme. Um, yeah, very nice. It's coriander. Yes, coriander too. Mm. So cheers, and uh, thanks for having a chat. <laughs> You're welcome. So um, really quickly, um, tiny bit about who you are, what you do right now, and how you came to be in this position. Uh, Just a a quick overview of your career. Sure. Um, I'm a senior program manager. I'm based here in Sydney. And I came into this role after 20 years in banking and finance IT, working in the big four and some of the smallers. Uh, And basically, it was the Royal Commission that made me think what would I like to do next and I moved into tech. Perfect. Okay. So, and now you work in what kind of role in tech? So within the support department is called customer support and success. uh, And it's an umbrella department that looks after enterprise support for both server and data center customers for your smaller customers, uh, right up to the, you know, huge companies, the cool flagship companies like SpaceX and Tesla uh, use our products as well. Wow. Okay. So in your own words, what is customer experience? Customer experience, in my words, are the view your customer has of your company from the outside. It's everything. It's when they call you, it's your web presence, it's your social media presence, it's what your marketing department says you're going to do. And it's what happens as you move through every process and interaction with that company, right through to when things aren't going well and they need to be fixed. How does that happen? Um, if you think of a customer journey life cycle and how a customer moves through a company and all the different people and teams that they touch along the way, customer experience is the umbrella that makes it all hang together uh, and make sure that things happening on the inside. So the customer service matches the customer's experience. 
uh, in a nutshell, your marketing department is making the promise at that the rest of the company needs to keep. So uh, it must get a bit political then uh, between departments, right? I think I have, look, I've seen politics, but what I've seen more of is comp- uh, different departments just not knowing what the other departments do. Uh, and my own personal tirade is called hashtag death to silos <laughs> because the silo company are the biggest cause of things going wrong that your customers will complain. Uh, I don't have the stats to hand, but of the customers who complain, uh, that's probably 30% of the customers who are actually having a bad experience but just aren't going to bother with complaining because A, they feel like nothing's going to change anyway, or B, they are just not the kind of person who's going to complain or answer a survey, etc. So, finger in the air, if you've got a thousand complaints a year, you probably have more like 3000 legit complaints a year. Um, I worked in a complaints team in one of the big banks and the reduction of complaints that I achieved on a project was 180,000 a year. So you can imagine the scale of, of, of contacts uh, and complaints that a bank would get, especially one of the big banks. Uh, and look, basically customer experience and how I got into that whole area was just digging going and figuring out what were the operations teams dealing with? What were the errors? What were the dead ends? What were all of the promises that marketing were talking about and the project changes and the new products? And then actually just being a customer and following it through and going, is this good enough? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's how I got customer experience was actually through the operations uh, and the project teams of banks. No, it's interesting you say that because um, it sounds like there's a silent majority of customers that you know you don't hear from, like you said, that can go missing out of all your reporting systems. So um, that's a huge chunk. And the bigger you get, obviously, the more apparent that becomes. So working with those bigger companies, you obviously, once you find that out, you find there's a huge chunk that are underrepresented. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, 100% true. I mean, if you're thinking about one of the big banks and they have you know your 10 million customers, if you think about maybe 30% are actually complaining, that's still a lot of complaints. But if you're thinking about well, how many of those things can we prevent by just not effing it up to begin with? It's a huge number and a huge opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I'd say probably the same in the large telcos, the large travel companies. Uh, and actually some of the best things I've learned in terms of nuggets of wisdom have been from going to these CX kind of symposiums and events where people from other industries tell you how they've tackled very common problems uh, and figuring out, well, what are the tactics they use to make a difference for their customers? Um, the Acor Hotel Group and the Ritz-Carlton Group um, and they're about making positive experiences all the time, whereas a bank is about just not making a negative experience worse. Generally, people don't ring up their bank to say, hey, we love you. They're ringing you up because they want you to go away and leave them alone. So you, it's either a very negative, skewed experience to begin with, depending on the, cost of the company, or it's a positive experience to begin with. So depending on what your baseline is, depends on the kind of tactics you can use to recover that service uh, when it goes the wrong way. That sounds great. So, I mean, on the flip side, what isn't customer experience or what does it get confused with? Because I hear this term around a lot and sometimes it's a bit fluffy and there's a lot of diverging views. Like, what isn't it? Yeah, true. Customer experience has been around for about 20 years. Um, I'm going to be a bit cheeky and say before customer experience, when you had business analysts whose job it was to actually know the whole business end to end and make sure changes happen seamlessly, I would say that would be the precursor for customer experience. What customer experience isn't uh, are the other things that, that, that people associate with it. So customer success is not customer experience. And I'll tell you why. Customer success are people that sit within your organization that help customers navigate a really uh, complicated ecosystem. How that's different to customer experience is customer experience makes sure that all the departments end to end know what each other are doing 
and that the customer is moving through that system seamlessly. And if it doesn't, why didn't it happen the way it should and what do we need to do to correct it? And then stepping back from that, looking at your metrics like NPS, CSAT, customer effort scores, et cetera, to figure out where those problems are. Uh, so the other thing that customer uh, experience isn't is marketing. Now, I've seen a lot of customer experience teams that are based in a marketing team, and I worked in Westpac for a while, and that was certainly the case, uh, and the chief marketing officer was the chief customer officer. So if you think about it, if customer experience is dictated by marketing, it means you need a stronger representation in those other teams to make sure that the things marketing is saying in the pretty ad campaign, no denigration intended to marketing, but they're very good at telling a nice story, but to support actually know what marketing is saying. Um, and I'd say I would be a millionaire today for every time that someone in the support team didn't know about a marketing campaign. Sure. So you're saying there's a bit of a conflict of interest if the, the chief customer officer responsible for CX is also in the marketing department as well. I'm not, uh, not necessarily a conflict of interest, but the skew or the, the priority might be different than sure. if it's owned by the support department. Sure. Okay. Um, so, you know, as I said, it's a bit of a, a fluffy word. It's a bit of a buzzword. Um, I know the bank's gone on to, to yep. customer ex experience and CX, uh, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago. Um, mm. Is it, do you think it's past its peak usage? Is it getting trumped by something else or a new buzzword or do you think it's here to stay? I think customer experience is the umbrella term for all of those different things that sit underneath it. And some of those things are your physical contact channels. So let's talk about if you're in a software company, for example, the entire customer experience that a customer might have in is digital. Uh, it's not people picking up phones or walking into a bank branch. It's literally what is the experience I'm having when I log my ticket, when I want to talk to my technical account manager, how fast do these things get resolved? Um, conversely, customer experience in a hotel, it is the physical experience. It's absolutely how easy was it to book online? For sure, there are digital elements, absolutely. But when you actually arrive at that hotel, does it smell good? Does it look good? Are the staff amazing? Do they just help you out? Is it super simple? Um, so I'd say the customer experience spectrum greatly depends on whether you're physical or digital for the most part. And then that will lead you to, are you talking about physical customer experience or like digital customer experience? And the other buzzword I'll bring up now is user experience or UX. UX is primarily the digital domain. So all of your social media, uh, all of your online apps, websites, obviously physical CX is what am I physically experiencing when I walk into that store or that hotel, et cetera. Sure. So they're not buzzwords. I just think it's, there's a really nice, if you go onto Pinterest and type in customer experience, someone created a great banner years ago, which is a big, it's literally an umbrella and it has what are all the things underneath CX uh, if you type in CX Umbrella, I don't know who created it, so props to them. Uh, but that really clears it up if you're not familiar with uh, UX and CX or if you're in one of the teams and you don't kind of know where you fit. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, I might, I might uh, put that uh, picture that you're referring to in the links of the blog article mm. about this podcast so everyone can see yep. what you're talking about. But it makes sense to me. So it's a very overarching sort of discipline. Correct. Okay, great. So, um, look, I've come across in my time a lot of people who, you know, map out a customer journey and, you know, call themselves a CX person. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you spot a CX person that is, um, who doesn't know what they're doing in this space, for example, who, you know, are pretty new to it and pretending to be something they're not? Like, um, do you have any sort mm -hmm. of telltale signs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say rather than someone who doesn't know what they're doing, I'll stick to more junior versus more senior. Mm -hmm. 
I'd say the more junior person will maybe oversimplify customer segmentation or they won't consider customer segmentation and just use personas. Uh, I think we're in a world of data-driven everything. So if your data team, depending on the size of your company, obviously, but if your data team doesn't have a central customer database based off your CRM, CRM sorry, and your transactional data to actually segment customers into meaningful categories of your business, that would be the first thing I would look for. Junior people don't tend to use segmentation. Uh, senior people do. The second thing is customer journeys are not just a happy path. They're an unhappy path as well. So more junior person will be like, oh, person logs in, person discovers product, person buys product, blah, blah, blah happens, they sign up and everything's happy. No. The more uh, seasoned professional will know there are absolutely failure points throughout that process that it might be preventable or non-preventable and what is the closing of those loops for those unhappy processes. Um, there are some nice stats from Baymill Forrester around service recovery. The service recovery paradox is, is a known phenomenon in CX. And it basically says that if you have a problem with a customer and the customer calls you and they want something fixed or logs an issue and you recover that issue satisfactorily to the point where it's, it's resolved and they can get on with their life, they're actually, they're actually going to be more loyal to your company than if they had not had the issue at all. So every issue that you actually have is an opportunity for you to make your customers more loyal. Um, but unless you've studied CX or you've been in the in uh, operations teams and customer complaints teams, you don't necessarily hear about this this kind of thing. Uh, so it's called the service recovery paradox. And basically, if a customer's complaining to you, you should use it as, as an opportunity, not just to fix the problem and hope that that person goes away as fast as possible, uh, like contact centers just want to get you off the phone. Every time they contact, every time a customer contacts you, that's actually an opportunity for you to make them more loyal than had they not contacted you at all. No, and look, that's, um, that has... Like from my experience, if, if you don't mind me interjecting, um, yeah. in agency days, when we'd have a problem client that were really angry, they were actually the best upsell opportunity because they wanted you to solve their problem necessarily. And that's when you could upsell them to the next tier package because they're angry for a reason generally because they were too cheap. But, um, you know, I've experienced that firsthand and then seeing the sales money come through and then that relationship is so much stronger. It's like um, if you have a friend and you've had some issues and you've gotten over them and you do that again and again, that bond is so much stronger, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And uh, I think as a second idea to that, if you are, if a customer is contacting you and they're actually their anger levels, uh, the higher the anger level the anger actually is just a reflection of how much they care and want it to work and their level of disappointment that once again, or maybe it's the first time you haven't met their need. So all customer complaints are come down to a, um, a miscommunication or a missed expectation. So they expected X to happen or you set an expectation that was A and actually B happened or Z happened. Um, so there, there's a miscommunication or a missed expectation and that's pretty much the basis of all complaints. Uh, if you're going to set an expectation in your marketing or in the thing you've sold, the customer just expects it to work. They don't want to have to contact you. People who are just standard consumers out there living their lives are not dreaming of your company in terms of, wow, how great is their service process? They're not dreaming of that. They just want it to work. Um, and I think that's sometimes the trap of marketing. They think that customers dream of your company all day long. And look, unless it's coffee, I'm a high level addict. Unless it's a coffee company, that's or a gin company, right? I'm not thinking about them 24 <laughs> I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing. And then if something's wrong, like this gin, I you know, get a bottle and there's something wrong, there's like an ant floating in it or something. Um, 
I want it fixed. What would I expect from a gin company? They send me another bottle of gin, it'd be nice or whatever it is. But I don't expect to kind of get onto, I don't know, log a form somewhere. I'm just thinking, what does a gin company have for service? I have no idea, but I don't expect to then wait to speak to someone. I don't expect to repeat my information over and over again. I don't expect to be handed off from team to team. I don't expect for people to not believe what I'm saying. I don't expect for people to treat me like I'm wrong and I'm a criminal. I just want it fixed. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest problems I see going back to the original question. I can talk for ages of how do you see someone who's, how do you can tell, how can you tell someone is less experienced or more experienced? The more experienced practitioner knows that a customer just wants to get on with their life. They don't want to be on the phone or contacting you or logging a, tech, a ticket, nothing. They don't want to be doing anything. They don't want it to be wrong to begin with. Uh, so I think a, re- a realistic approach as to what the solution should be is also the domain of senior people. Uh, realistic approaches, really clearly outlined, um, that work for the whole ecosystem. So not me blaming another department or me saying, oh, I'm sorry you've had that experience. Yeah, that person sucks or whatever. It's happens to me. Uh, it's making sure the whole ecosystem works and a more senior person will have that ecosystem closed loop feedback approach, whereas a more junior person will do their task as in here is the process and it's mapped and it works but they won't necessarily be thinking about the wider context and making sure the people across the, the different departments know what each other are doing for the customer. I think that's, that's a great answer. Um, I haven't heard many people explain I'm, I'm that very excited. <laughs> that's great. So um, we've touched on a couple of these skills, but like um, what things do you think a, a really good person who's, uh, who's good at customer experience needs to have? Like what kind of skills or skill sets or training? Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you're into data analytics and had worked operationally and, you know, been that sort of front line of the customer experience and then had to solve those issues and operationally between departments. So getting your hands dirty, which I really like. Um, what do you think a good CX person needs to have? I'd say it's becoming more prevalent that data skills are necessary because to dig into what's gone wrong, a lot of the time you are looking at uh, audit logs and digital, I guess, traces of where a customer has been. So if you're in a more technical company, I'm going to say, if you're in a hotel chain, that's probably not true. Uh, I think a real drive to want to solve problems. Uh, it's, It's all and good to kind of say you're in CX, but my overarching, I guess, value in CX is how many problems have you solved today for customers? And if you haven't solved problems every day for customers, I'd question, well, are you just, do you have a vanity CX kind of department where you report on things and things don't really change? Or you're actually getting out there, seeing how customers are handling your processes, how are they experiencing your processes uh, and how are they experiencing your experiences? Obviously, your experience is above your process. So what are the things that you're doing on a daily basis to make sure you understand what the customer's going through, keeping your knowledge up to date uh, and solving problems on a regular basis? Um, To me, I'm sceptical if I can't get a couple of answers out of people. One is how many customers do you have? If you can't answer that question, to me, I said, well, hmm, how serious are you? Uh, particularly if you ask a chief customer officer that and they don't know the answer, I'm like, hmm, okay, good. Uh, or you don't have a real-time dashboard to just click on and tell you the answer. Both things are scary. Uh, and the other thing I'd look for is uh, how often do they have a regular forum where people from marketing, from legal, from customer support, from development, from blah, 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 can get together and actually just share information. If you're right. doing that, the more 
you do that, the cadence of problem solving is quicker and the CX person can generate more value because they're literally bringing people together to unearth these problems on a more regular basis. So you're saying so that the, the meetings of like an all hands on decks and a meeting with all the departments where the customer journey uh, yeah. you know, goes between having some kind of regularity about talking about the same yeah. thing with every different department. Absolutely. Um, like in a more advanced CX ecosystem, you'll have a process owner, so someone who owns it end to end, as opposed to just owning a product, for example. Like just say I'm in a bank and I own a particular set of credit cards. It's one thing to be the product owner and I care about everything in that vertical about that about that credit card. So what is everything I need to know about that credit card? It's budget, it's it's customers, it's who, where do I print the brochures, like where the plastic's made. Like that's, that's a very specific domain of expertise. But if you've got a process owner, it actually follows the customer through the company. So that customer might not just have a credit card. They might have a home loan. They might have a car loan. They might have a hex debt. There might be a power of attorney on someone's account. They might have a whole bunch of complexities that mean the credit card person's view is more up and down vertical but the CX person's view or the process owner's view is more across. And if you're in a company that has process owners, I'd say that probably means your business teams have spoken to your IT teams about what CX should look like. So right. you've been big for have that kind of a, an approach. So, I mean, we have talked about some of the areas that you delve into as a CX professional, I suppose. Um, yeah. If we had to simply break down your process, mm. so you've just got a new job, you're the head of CX, they've never had a CX department before, and you had to explain yeah. to someone, okay, this is what we're going to do for the next, you know, 12 months period. What are the kind of yeah. steps or stages or responsibilities um, that you would go through? Yeah. Well, just back on your last question, like what other skills would you use? I'm Lean Six Sigma qualified uh, and also change management. So I use those interchangeably with, with project management and product management and <laughs> data and, and all those different things. But the reason I bring it up is um, I follow a very basic diagnostic like you would on a Kaizen event or on a Lean Six Sigma diagnostic. I'll tell you what those are, just so it's not just language that I'm flying at you. So if you want a nice acronym for Lean Six Sigma, it's DMAIC, which is define, measure, I always forget A, um, and control is the last one. So anyway, you've got these five stages. The first one is the diagnostic. Um, whether I'm doing a CX project or any other style of project is what information do you need? And basically for CX, it's voice of customer, voice of business. So gather the information first in real time. So what's the latest version of those, those views? What are your customers saying? What are people who are in the business working on these problem areas saying? Uh, and then if it's a big problem or a big company, I'll say what are senior leadership also saying about whatever the issue is? Uh, what do you, what's your complaints data look like? Go and get it. What does your digital data look like? Go and get that as well. Uh, if you have a contact center, go and figure that out. And when I'm saying go get the data, I'm saying what are the complaints? Where are the failure points? Where are the bottlenecks? Just where is the transaction volume? Because basically wherever your transaction volume is, is where the majority of the problems are going to lie uh, that you want to tackle first. So once you've got all of this nice, cool information, look, that's awesome. But how do you kind of make sense of it or start to make sense of it? Um, I would break it down into another nice acronym, which is a SIPOC, System Input Process Output Customer. Okay. So that's a Lean Six Sigma thing. And basically what it does is you gather up all of the pieces of information from reports and data and stuff, and it puts it into a basically a process. So you can understand roughly what does the process look like? Because let's assume you don't have a customer journey, right? So you don't have something to start with. That's basically a Lean Six Sigma version of what your customer journey is using what are all the building blocks that a company currently has to see that journey, like how are they seeing it now? 
given it hasn't been mapped like in a sensible or clear way. The way, the reason why that's important is because very rarely do you just walk into a company, it's greenfield and you start from scratch. Generally speaking, there are efforts that have been going on by operations teams and customer experience people and research teams, and they've got bits and pieces, but maybe your ecosystem is just disjointed or the company's grown quite quickly. So you don't have it in a cohesive and rationalized kind of ecosystem. It's just like lots of stuff's happening, but there's people stepping all over each other. That's the majority of what. Uh, so, for example, um, I did a contract in one of the banks and they had 27 different customer-facing teams all saying they're doing customer experience, but they didn't even have one central database to capture all the problems. So can you imagine the amount of rework and people stepping on toes and, like, how much momentum can you get in solving customers' problems end-to-end if you've literally got 27 views of what the customer problem is? And the bureaucracy between systems uh, and requiring, yeah. you know, an authorization to get that data and then back again... Yeah. Nothing would get done. Correct. So in terms of getting that CIPOC together, what are the reports? Where is the data? Like that's your systems. What are your inputs? So how are customers coming into your system all the ways? Process, what are your main processes that customers are going through? Like are they getting home loans? Are they staying in a hotel room? Whatever it is. Uh, Five to seven steps generally. Um, Outputs, so what is the customer getting? You know, are they getting a home loan? Are they getting a nice holiday? What are they getting? Um, and then the customer itself. So what is the customer giving you in the process? What is the customer taking from the process? Who are the customers? What do I need to know about them? You know, are there third parties involved? Blah, blah, blah. So anyway, building up that CIPOC view, you basically got a very rough validation model that you can then take to the 27 teams who are involved and say, is this right? Have I got everything? Is this all the stuff you guys currently use? And they'll go, no, you forgot this, or actually there's three of those, there's not two of them. How many Salesforce instances do you have? You know, there's always more than one. Um, and then you can validate and start there. And when I say start there, that's literally the beginning of figuring out the spaghetti of what your customer experience should look like for all the different channels that the customer is coming to you for. Oh, did you just say spaghetti? That you're talking to customers through. So you're basically aiming to create a circle. If customer comes into your system, customer goes out of your system. And then if you think about that circle looping on into the future, that's actually a customer journey. It's a customer life cycle. It isn't just a line. It's actually a looping circle, if that makes sense. Look, just as you're talking, um, obviously I do a lot of growth work for the tech industry, right, and and traditional firms. Um, And again, we look at everything the whole customer journey. And we also look at, you know, post sales processes of like upselling, mm-hmm. cross-selling, LTVs. Um, so it's a very multidisciplinary area. And everyone asks me, oh, what's the secret of growth? I'm like, well, the secret of growth is removing the things that are stopping growth. <laughs> so um, it sounds like you have a very similar approach for CX. Um, what similarities do you see between the two disciplines? So you must know a lot of growth people as well. The first thing is stop shooting yourself in the foot. That's certainly something that I, I believe in. What are the reasons that you're currently pissing your customers off that are just because you guys are stepping over each other? You know, like missed calls, not getting back to customers, saying you're going to call them in 48 hours, but that message never gets to that other team. Uh, Teams spending time passing customers back and forward between each other. Uh, All of this stuff falls under, if you're a Lean Six Sigma boff and it's time and waste analysis, all the ways you're wasting time for the customer and all the ways you're creating errors for the customer. Uh, So I'd say all of that kind of, Spaghetti, I'll call it all spaghetti stuff. Um, that is absolutely similar to, you're not going to grow if you're spending, let's say, 30% of your capacity passing stuff backward and forward in your own team. Um, you're just literally wasting time. 
Yeah. Uh, the other similarity I'd say is CX has an, a notion which comes from Jean Bliss and she her website is customerbliss.com and she has a concept called earn the right to growth. But it's a CX tool, so like we're, we're connected already. And basically she says if you're spending a whole bunch of money acquiring customers month to month, week to week, whatever you measure, but in that same time period, customers are leaving because they're dissatisfied with either the product or the service or both. And those two areas who are responsible for those acquisition and retention are not talking to each other. Just say you spent a million bucks this month and you've acquired 100,000 customers, just making it up, but then you've spent 150,000, sorry, 1.5 million and you've lost a whole bunch of customers. Your net formula for the month, your sales team think they've done an awesome job your retention team think they've done an awesome job, but they actually net each other out. So that entire month, you actually haven't earned any right to growth. So all that effort actually becomes just massive churn. And I mean, in terms of its internal company churn, because yeah. you're spending all this here and it's just walking out the door there. So I don't know, here's a concept, like actually talk to each other and figure out why customers are leaving. And then when you're acquiring those customers, make sure those processes are actually triaging and targeting those customers in a way that means those services can actually support those customers need. Uh, I think I've never worked in sales, but I have definitely worked in client implementation um, on white labels, customer solutions for credit cards and, and that kind of thing. And the one thing that I will say, I'm sorry, salespeople out there, but you have a bad, bad um, reputation for promising the world and then not delivering. <laughs> so instead of just doing that, sorry, people, just solve the problem. Like that's all it needs to be. I've never done any sales training, but all you're trying to do is solve the problem, right? So if you're solving the customer's problem, well, A, you're not promising something you can't deliver, and B, the customer's getting what they actually just want. And then once you've done that, then you can grow. But if, I don't know, the, the, the bright, shiny like customer walks in the door and you know they're from X company, so they've got a ton of money, um, it put, as someone who sat in that seat being an Atlassian and get approached constantly like, oh, do you know, buy this, buy that. So, but what problem are you solving for me? Like, you don't even know me. How can you know you've got a solution for me? Just pick up the phone and ask and figure out what problem needs to be solved. And then I'd say the growth concepts of the sales teams are completely aligned to what the, the support and success teams are doing, which is solving problems for customers. And I think if we could get an ecosystem happening where everyone's focused on solutions rather than sales, uh, the uplift is dramatic. Uh, and the example for that is I worked in um, CBA a while back when they did move their quota sales methodology to a solution-based methodology. And yes, it was in re response to regulatory, but it meant that the people in the front lines and the people on the phones weren't just blogging you things. They were literally trying to figure out how many problems they could solve for you. So the mindset shift happened in the company, but the customers definitely felt it. Oh. So where is CBA? Like, um, I've worked with a lot of sales teams and obviously <laughs> you don't like sales, you don't like marketing. That's like two of my primary areas. <laughs> I like them. I think differently about the customer. <laughs> it's great. Um, so some sales teams, obviously it depends on the remuneration, right? So if it's a based on commission sale, just getting them in the door at whatever cost and that's how they're remunerated, um, then oh, cool. that's what they're going to optimize for. But then other sales teams have um, changed the remuneration. So there's a bit upfront, mm. a lot of trailing commissions mm. off the life cycle mm. of the customer. You get a completely mm. different dynamic in terms of acquisition of customers and they tend to be more aligned around solving the problem, not short term, but long term as well. It oh, makes everything 100 and one of the underpinnings for any good CX system is what are the incentives? 
if you can't identify, so one of the other questions I love, aside from how many customers do you have is how do your employees get rewarded? What is the remuneration schedule? What does it look like? What do I get? Because whatever you're incentivizing is what's happening in the story. So if you go about doing all the greatest surveys in the world and have the best digital presence and the most awesome social media and everything's shiny and awesome, but your customers are coming in the door to have a problem solved, but your staff are not incentivized to solve that problem, you're just wasting your time. You know what? It's a good point. Um, That's something I do. I do a bit of small business consulting as well, right? And um, that is the main thing I see is that the first point of contact with a customer service or salesperson or whatever, if... Often they're not incentivized to to deal with a higher call volume or, or lead volume and to close those sales because they're paid on a sort of hourly basis, like casual work or whatever. And um, because there's no incentive there, they don't care. And if, in fact, uh, I would generate more demand for the business, and that would actually increase the workload of this frontline staff member who isn't incentivized to do more work, and they end up That's like. Right having a worse result. So then I've come through and used sort of your thinking going, okay, why is I've got all this more demand, you know, marketing metrics are going through the roof, but we're not translating mm. them to sales. Like what's happening? And then I'll go and delve in. And it was generally the frontline worker who's a casual, like, you know, younger person who doesn't give a shit about the business. <laughs> and there's no, and, that's why, right? and it all fall, falls over. Skin in the game, right? The mm. reason why you're the high level execs and leadership um, team members care about driving these results is they've got bonuses tagged to it, right? So they want to see the numbers go in a certain direction. But if you don't give the same opportunity to the people who are going to help make that happen by actually aligning their KPIs and their incentives to the same strategy, missing the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then how many fancy strategy sessions have you been in where HR have not been involved, i.e. all of them, and then wonder why these things don't get off the ground? It's like if you're going to keep your silo, well, how do you expect to be driving a common strategy if big chunks of the business are not involved in making that happen? Mm. Um, and I think KPIs and particularly this in banking. So getting a union to agree to changes across 50,000 people is not an easy task. It actually was the longest part of the whole program and the thing that was started first when they changed branches and changed them from really big hub hub, uh, sorry, big uh, master branches down to little, you know, the more kiosk branches you see to that, you see today that absolutely affected people's remuneration and the amount of leads they got and, the, and therefore their direct bonuses. So the negotiations for the KPIs for those frontline staff members actually fell under the remit of the CX teams because it would affect the customer experience and customers getting solutions if the alignment of KPIs weren't towards solutions. Sure. So even though you might not put those two things together to begin with, it's absolutely part of your change management plan is what does this mean for the people in the job and what are they getting out of this? Hmm. So what? So yeah, it can touch a lot of areas that you may not necessarily expect them to. No, I think that's really great. I mean, and that sort of brings me to my next point. Like um, we've talked a couple about these things that you look at and problems you're solving, but what are some quick wins? Um, again, let's put us back in the mind of a new CX person or a yeah. junior team. Um, what would you recommend they focus on to like get some impact really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everyone loves a quick win, particularly like people who go from meeting to meeting to meeting all day, just want to hear about quick wins, don't want to hear about problems as we know. Uh, the first the most I think impactful thing that you can do as a CX person is make sure that the complaints and the real interactions of customers are being seen by senior people. And that might sound tricky, but it could just be a dashboard. So where is your customer data? Go find it. Where is the customer complaints data? Go find it. Where are the, um, 
every department will have a list, I call it the back of the napkin list, of things they want to fix for customers but never seem to have time to do. Go find those as well. Put them all in one place and then share that out. Here are all the problems that all of our departments, and I've spoken to all these people, put their names up there. This is what we currently think our CX looks like. And then make sure senior leadership see that. And they'll be like, didn't we fix that? Didn't we fix that? Didn't we fix that thing? Like, <laughs> and if nothing, it's a fresh baseline and fresh eyes on the problem. Yep. And what I say to my junior CX people who work with me uh, is you are currently the expert on customer experience in this company because you have the latest information. And that is, that is how you have a quick impact as a junior CX person is by knowing in detail what is going on in each of those other teams. And then what's on how can you find ways to help each other? That's great. I think that's really practical advice. I mean, um, I haven't even thought of that. So I think that's great. I mean, I do a very similar thing with growth. You know, you find all your choke points in your, in your sales and growth funnel and then you address those one by one by one. So I can see some crossover here with perhaps the approaches in the two disciplines. It's great. Mm. Um, mm. So, okay, speaking of, of that, what's the flip side? Pretend leadership has seen that and they go, oh, wow, we've got all these problems. Um, what are the biggest barriers to this? Because, you know, you mentioned silos. And for me, again, yeah. there's a huge issue, conflicts of interest, politics between departments like... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them, a whole bunch of nasty ones. Look, I'd say the biggest thing that you want to ensure you have is leadership buy-in. And that sounds like one of those ephemeral, weird things that you want to try and get somehow. Uh, But honestly, leadership buy-in to me is as simple as finding who are the sponsors who have the most to lose and the most to gain through fixing these problems. Find out what the impact of these problems are simply by figuring out how many customers are potentially impacted. And then having a coffee with these people to say, by the way, you know that problem that you think only affects 3,000 people? Well, actually, that's 3,000 people who are worth X millions of dollars to us in revenue. So, again, you need your data to be able to do that. If we fixed it, it would mean X change to your business. Now, that doesn't sound like an easy thing to do. But at the end of the day, senior leadership like money and they like to know where they can save money and they like to know where they can make money. And the biggest tip I've got is tie your work back to the dollars and cents of the business. What is the business trying to achieve? And how can you prioritize the CX initiatives that will help the strategy get to where it needs to go? Uh, So if you're in an operations team, it's always about reducing costs. Quick example, I worked on a fax project. Yes, a fax project less than five years ago. And there was a fax process that was still generating internally 600,000 pages of faxes a year. Why? When was this? It was recently. Less than five years ago. I'm not going to say where it was. (laughs) And it was simply because the smart fax computer installed software was not approved by someone in a particular department. So one department was using old school fax, like a natural fax machine, like who even has those anymore? And all the other teams on the process were using this thing called smart fax, which was like a fax queuing system. So it was using fax numbers, but it was all based in computers, right? And by stripping out the 600,000 pages of faxes a year, guess how much money that saved? Million, two million? Yeah, $1.2 million, Ooh. just like that. If you think about an operating department, they don't have $1.2 million to spend. They are, you know, stretching their resources as far as possible. They always get absolutely the least, the least uh, amount of budget that they need. They never get what they need. So to go into an operations team and find problems that need fixing, there will always be a list. 
Um, to me, that's where the value is because you want to then say, demonstrate, I've saved you 1.2 million already and that was just my first pass. Let me take a look at a few other areas. Hey, so, um, because at the end of the day, those faxes weren't just a CX issue, i.e. it was a delay in the process of what, 24 to the business. So finding the alignment between the problems you're finding and the strategy of the business and then the bottom line dollars. So if you made a triangle, I'd say, what is the people issue or you know, the customer issue? What is the process issue, i.e. the faxing? And, and what is the, I guess, the budgetary issue? Okay, Where so are you going to create? Just a summary about what you're saying then. Just say, be very clear about the business case and make a solid business case. And then that will be the biggest um, solution to any objections you get uh, in terms of implementation. I think people get intimidated by business case, but it can be as simple as, um, I've got like a seven-step business case. I can write the points up and you can share it or whatever. That'd be great. Um, um, how many customers does the problem impact? Um, what is the impact to those customers in terms of time, cost, or quality? Times one by the other, that's your you know, potential impact. Then I'd say, what's your cost of fixing it? So, you know, you might have to ask a few you know, experts what that might be, depending on what the option is. Is it a manual solution? Is it an automated solution? Get it, get a ballpark, like is it 50K, whatever it is. What's the cost of doing nothing? Now, that's the most important step because you're going to find where in the business is this cost already being realised? And if you do nothing at all and you don't fix the problem, you're already going to pay that amount of money. And I guarantee you it'll be more than what the fix costs. So very rarely have I seen it the other way around. And then you present those very basic data points to senior leadership because it's very easy to explain. You don't need some fancy model. And basically if you say, if you fix this problem for this amount of customers, which is worth this much to us, and, in, and we'll reduce that cost that you're already wearing now through doing nothing at all by just investing 50 grand, that's all you need for a business case in CX. You don't need to get more fancy than that. You don't need a financial model because just that alone is compelling enough for someone to go, actually, you know what? Spending 50-ish grand to save a million a year, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of the ICE framework that we're using, Growth, that Sean Ellis, um, you know, Hacking Growth yeah. Guy um, promotes. So mm -hmm. that, that sounds great to me. Um, wow, okay, so... Six Sigma uh, DMAIC, right? Do you call it DMAIC or DMAC? Oh, people want call it DMAIC. I call it DMAIC, whatever. DMAIC. Okay, so we're going to concentrate on the M1 now. And my question to you, and um, obviously we had a bit of discussion before this about uh, NPSs and some of the um, failings of it and strengths and weaknesses. Favorite. What was that? CX metrics, my favorite topic. Okay, great. So um, I think it's a really poignant one because, you know, okay, maybe we've analyzed the problem. We've got all the uh, you know, hypotheses of things that we could solve, but then, you know, we need to measure it to create the business case. Um, and also after we implement, we need to measure again to make sure that there's been a, a measurable improvement. So very critical area in my experience, um, prone to a lot of politics as well. There's different ways you can present data <laughs> um, and a lot of failings yeah. um, in that. So uh, give me a quick overview what kind of things you're measuring all the time and what's your approach with that? Yeah, sure. Look, I'd say the big, the big thing to keep note of when you're, it doesn't matter what the metric is. So NPS measures loyalty, right? How, how much is a customer going like likely to stay with you versus not customer satisfaction is transaction based. How satisfied were, were they with that particular thing they experienced? And then customer if it is, did they find it simple and easy to do business with you? I'm going to nutshell. That's your top three or the three that I would, I would use aside from all the operational metrics and stuff that's available to you. But from a CX perspective, they're my top three. I think there is a common misconception that there is one right CX metric and people argue until the cows come home, literally, um, 
is it NPS or is it CSAT? It doesn't matter. What matters is that you do something with the metric and that you really the only thing that matters is the trend. Is it going up or is it going down? And what are you going to do about it? Because at the end of the day, they're both, they're both lag measures, right? They're just telling you what's happened. You're awesome, but there's a customer right now trying to use your website and it's not loading for them. So to me, it's important to measure those like high-level indicators as a, a roadmap of where you've come from and where you're going on a regular basis, like every three months or whatever it is. But it's more important to get the data about what's happening right now for customers. So if there's some way you can get a lead measure, either by drop-offs of, of you know your sell sell page, whatever you, wherever you submit, you know to to contact a customer or that wasn't very articulate, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Or if you're looking at drop-offs, or if, what are those real-time stats that you can get from your digital teams from that perspective, or from your branch teams? To if you're in a bank or if you know retail team, store whatever it is, what are the things you can find out right now about your customer that you can act on and prevent an issue happening? So there's another concept in Lean Six Sigma, which is it's much better to to prevent an issue from happening at all than to either fix it when you find it or uh, have to fix it after the fact. So there's a, like a triangle model involved. I love triangle. Um, so if you fix the problem today, it's one X. If you have to detect the problem and then fix it, it's 10x. If you find it after the fact and have to go back and retrospectively fix something, it's 100x. If you think about if a customer calls up today and says, I've got a problem, and you fix it on the spot, boom, done. One day worth of annoyance. Whereas if I run a customer remediation program five years after that event has happened, and I have to go all the way back and place the whole thing back in order, and how many staff do I need, and how much data do I need, it's 100x, right? So anytime you can prevent an issue happening, you're saving yourself money and you're saving your customer pain. So back to customer effort. There are lots of ways to measure customer effort, but think of it like this, time, cost, or quality. Do you have indicators that tell you how long a customer is taking to do something? You probably do. Do you have measures which tells you how much a customer is having an error of some kind? So what error measures can you dig out of your systems or out of your teams uh, and as real time as possible? And then the last one is around cost. bit harder to get a real-time measure on cost, but it might be abandoned baskets, for example. How many, every day of the week, at the end of the day, figure out how many abandoned baskets you had. And then you can see, is there a pattern? Is that a weekly thing? Is it a cyclical thing? What can I do tomorrow to make sure that doesn't happen again? Or what can I do next Tuesday to make sure that last Tuesday didn't happen again? So trying to figure out what are those time costs and quality measures that you can find about your customers as they're in the process. And I'd say that's the big thing I would look for and the big difference between very standard CX dashboards that you know, care about your NPS and give you like just numbers of transactions going through, which is fine, but that's already happened, versus what are the time, cost and quality measures that you can look at the customer today to make a difference to what's going to happen to those customers tomorrow. Huh. So for like example... That. Yeah, so you, you're, you're talking about like um, measures right now versus lag measures yeah. like NPS. So, but just, yeah. I, I want to drill down a bit. I've got a question about yeah. this and play devil's advocate. Because um, we see NPS everywhere. We see CSAT everywhere. Um, I see perhaps more NPS in more tech firms. or um, yeah. uh, And what are the biggest failings with that? Because personally, sometimes I see that's not relative to other competitors in the space. So, or there's a bias sample. I mean, <laughs> what are the funniest things you've seen with, with that? You can have so many issues is my short answer. Um, for example, in banking, they compare NPS across the big four. So Roy Morgan does that and DBM, some of the other consultancies. So you can literally pay to get the report, which 
shows you what, what is your measure compared to other measures. Uh, the Edelman Trust Index does the same thing on trust measures. Uh, trust Pilot does it as well between competitors. You can get like a trust measure. Um, so there are ways in me dealing the same, with competitors. The same thing happens in, in brand, like it's like brand equity tracking um, companies that do, you know, between the category yep. of longitudinally and every year it comes out, mm. but it doesn't really mean anything. I think what matters is action. Um, to me, it's, it go back to my previous point. It doesn't matter what the metric is. What matters is that you do something with it and that you measure it regularly so you can see change happen. If you're not seeing change happen, it's a sign that, well, customers aren't resonating with what you're doing. So run another customer lab. I'm not saying do another survey because everyone's sick of surveys, but call some customers who are still not happy and figure out what's going on and fix it. Hey, so I've got Really not. Sorry, I've got a bit of a Peter Thiel question for you next. Um, yeah. What's something about CX that most people believe in that you know is wrong? Ooh, I don't know. I can't remember if I wrote you an answer to this already in our little pre-survey. I probably I'll, did. I'll give you a jog. Uh, you said uh, that all CX metrics are the same and that there is one right metric. We've kind of already talked yeah, about that I, to an extent. Right, so. Yeah, I said people think that one CX metric is right, but it's not. It's a, it's a combination of metrics depending on what you're trying to solve. So if I was in, say, the digital space, I'd be more interested in those transactional level metrics, like simple and easy. So customer effort and more interested in, you know, abandoned carts and that kind of thing. So you'd have those more sub metrics and then you'd overarchingly maybe point that to CSAT. Um, NPS to me is like what happens at the end of a journey. I'll use a banking example. So if I'm Catherine goes to a bank branch cause I'm old, I'm going to say, no, that's not a nice way to say it. I'm a, a person who likes bank branches. So I've gone to my bank branch to talk to my bank manager and I want a loan for something or other. And I go through that whole process and Barry, the bank manager, is awesome and I get what I need and it's all been lovely and I have a cup of tea with him and everything's fine. NPS is the thing I measure at the end of that entire interaction to figure out whether Barry's going to bring the rest of his family because he's had such a good experience. He's going to tell everyone at the barbecue that it was awesome and he's going to refer everyone in there. NPS is good for that, that end of process after a bunch of different interactions, but that NPS score is dependent on all of the different steps that happened along the way. So overarchingly, as human beings, we remember there's a thing called a peak end rule. I didn't invent it. A psychologist called Antonio Damasio invented it. I'll put it on my list of things I need to give you. That's great. And basically the peak end rule um, is about when you go through any experience, let's think of a holiday, you're mostly at the end of that experience, you know, our memories are not perfect. You'll mostly remember the most awesome thing that happened and you remember the thing that happened last. So if the thing that happened last was a really shitty checkout experience of the hotel, that's going to flavor your whole experience. Although you still might remember that you skydived and it was awesome. But the balance of NPS or CSAT that you use is dependent on the peak end. So as someone who's using CSAT, I'm measuring that each of those steps has been awesome or not shit at the very least. And then I will know indicatively that if all of those steps along the way have been good, most likely that NPS at the end will also be good, right? That's the whole way you should use uh, CSAT and NPS together. And if I then say, okay, well, my peak experience of, let's say, getting the home loan, it's a pretty boring experience to measure, but the peak experience is getting an approval. Awesome. I have a cup of tea with my bank manager. That's fantastic. The bank manager sends me a bottle of champagne when I settle. The settlement goes through seamlessly. And there I am sitting in my new house drinking my new champagne with the glasses the bank manager sent me. The peak's been good because I got the approval, but the end is good too because the bank manager sent me champagne glasses, let's just say, right? 
Whereas if I had the worst experience and blah, 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 you know, we've all had terrible experiences you can extrapolate. My peak is going to be low and my end is probably going to be low. Therefore, the NPS is low. That customer's not coming back. You had me at champagne. (laughs) Funny that I use that as an example on this podcast. But it's true, right? The more that every person who's part of that process does their very best to ensure that the customer is getting just what they paid for, you don't have to make it bells and whistles necessarily, depending on the context. But as long as each part of that process is outlined to the customer what it's expected to be and you met their expectation, that's really all it takes to stay on the positive side of NPS and CSAT. Yeah. Okay, that's good. But as soon as you ask the customer 15 times their name, pisses them off. So, so why don't you know my name? Why, this- why don't you... You must have experienced some very interesting things, right? Like um, talking to customers or some some funny meetings you mentioned before. You know, you're in a meeting with without representation of departments that should be there and things like that. What yeah. What are your funniest moments that you've had in the field that that you can talk about, perhaps? Yeah. Well, the, the funniest thing that I find, um, and this was in a bank, and you'll see immediately why this is in a bank. So whenever I work in a different contract, I go and do a profanity index. And it's basically, what are the reasons that a customer is swearing at the company? So what has it made them so incensed that they're hurling profanity at you? And you can capture that in the complaint systems. You can capture that in phone calls, all of that. So you do a little profanity index. I have smart people do that for me. I'm not coding myself. And what are the reasons that customers are swearing at you? When are they most angry? So in one company, call it the customer angriness index. And another one, we just call it the profanity index. Uh, literally a department were called scum sucking leeches and blood sucking vipers. That's not the kind of thing you'd expect the CEO would know about. So we just published the profanity list to the CEO. He was horrified, horrified that customers have experiences that are this bad. And so I challenged senior leaders and him in particular, was it me directly? It was my <laughs> GM. <laughs> not that fancy. Um, ring up the call center and just try and get a question answered and see how easy it is. And then see how frustrated you get. Like and mystery the reason, shopping, basically. Yeah, mystery shopping. Um, the reason why that team for that problem finds it so difficult to get back to you is you slash their budgets. They literally don't have enough people. So the call waiting time is not 90 seconds like it should be. It's, you know, three and a half minutes or 10 minutes or 18 minutes or whatever it is. The CEO has complete control over that experience. Doesn't even know it. Yeah, by just allocating dollars in a different way. So yeah, tying the profanity index, like something everyone can identify with, to an outcome that that person can control, to me was an interesting tactic. No one had ever looked at it before. I'm like, we work in a bank, everyone hates us. Like surely our profanity index is going to be amazing to read. And it was, there were some things to read. There were okay. some nice comments, but for the most part, like snakes, leeches, no one's, no one's calling a bank a fluffy bunny, right? They're calling you snakes, leeches, all the rest of it. Well, Viper, that's a new one. I haven't heard about that. Uh, what about on the flip side then? Um, let's go on the positive. Uh, what are the, some of the biggest successes you've had by applying your expertise to, to problems? Um, I'm going to say there are, there's big in terms of monetary and there's big in terms of customers actually being happy. Uh, the biggest monetary thing I saved was the 180,000 complaint contacts that I was telling you about. So that was huge. That was 20% of the volume of the annualized. Of so you just got rid just, of the complaints? Or? We found out what were the top five reasons customers were contacting those particular teams and we basically got rid of those problems. It sounds simple. It wasn't it was a six-month process. A whole bunch of different things like communications not going the right way, the IVR not structured correctly. 
uh, teams being responsible for things that they were never really responsible for and just picked up things or just mismatch of roles and responsibilities, communication, uh, structures that has changed over time, legacy decisions, just stuff that hadn't been reviewed in a long time. It resulted in this 20% decrease in, in volume, which was, you know, pretty awesome. Wow. I mean, I those teams must have loved you and, and the KPIs must have gone up, right? You will, yeah, absolutely, because you're getting rid of a whole bunch of stuff that shouldn't have happened anyway. Hmm. And that's, that goes back to my point around shooting yourself in the foot. Stop shooting yourself in your foot and you'll release capacity to actually solve customer problems and get rid of your backlog. Great. Uh, in terms of customers happy, um, we had a program running, it was at CBA, where the GM of the department would actually just call up customers randomly and he would listen to their problems and personally handle their cases. And because of his example, some of the other GMs also started following suit. So they each uh, committed to calling, I think it was 30 customers a month. So it was like a customer a day. Someone had gone through their process and not had an awesome time. And by the GM picking up the phone and spending that time with that customer, letting the customer tell their story and helping resolve the problem, A, bad skin in the game, my other favorite phrase, and B, the customers were actually genuinely happy because they didn't expect a GM to contact them. But my challenge to anyone who's a senior leader watching, watching this after the event is if you're not in touch with your actual customers to know what they're actually thinking, whether it's you're sitting behind the glass in a market research panel or you're out on the front lines in your company figuring out what customers are actually doing, I would also challenge you, what, what are you doing? Because it's your job to know what your customers want and need. Go out there and ask them. Well, you don't just suddenly walk into the building and all of that doesn't exist. You're still a customer yourself. You know what you like. Make that happen in your own company. I really like um, what you just brought up there, like skin in the game, because that's what this podcast is all about. I'm trying to find people who, you know, are responsible for something, are dealing with frontline people and responsible for the implementation and, and, and the finish. So I really like what you said there about the gyms because, uh, you know, Coles, the, one of the big supermarkets in Australia, in the duopoly, um, they have this program where the, everyone in the whole organization has to spend at least one week on on the tills oh, yeah. as people come through. And I think that's a really good way of just grounding yeah. everyone going, okay, this is our core business, you know. Um, you're going to have to deal with, with all the issues at that end point of sale. Same thing in, in the banks. I'm not going to speak for now because it's been a while since I've been in them. But uh, when I started in uh, my permanent role at CBA quite a few years ago, it was standard for all project personnel, so whether you're a contractor or not, to go and spend at least just one day listening to calls. So you would know exactly what customers are saying uh, and exactly what, what your project was supposed to fix. So depending on what you were there to do, like a home loan project, for example, you go and sit with the home loan team and listen to what customers were saying. And A, they're learning kind of the process for sure, but you're also learning, well, what are the things that I can fix as part of this problem? Uh, and I'd say if, there was a, if there's a kind of a very easy fix that any company can do today to improve their customer's experience is, Go and, ask the, the, go and ask the team who handles the complaints. So it's the social media team generally and your phone team if you have one and your online like comments, like submit a complaint kind of people. Go and ask them what is their, on their wish list of things that they want fixed. What are those things that have been promised to be fixed for years and years and years and never happens and see if you can get them fixed. A, you'll win friends in operations, which is always a good thing because they know everything. And B, you'll legitimately be helping customers in a way that maybe wasn't expected of you originally. And anyone in the company can do that. Hey, so um, I think you've pretty much answered everything, um, except, you know, one thing, what's a little juicy nugget from, from your experience um, operating this role at a very high level for a long period of time? Like, 
little trick yeah. or something that you can tell perhaps some other budding CX people out there that, hey, do this and this will work? Yeah, yeah. Oh, like the, the catch-all silver bullet that I always say doesn't exist, <laughs> but you want one anyway. Maybe one little section uh, of something or a technique. And you've mentioned a lot, yeah, right? so I don't uh, think you need to go into too much detail. But no, no. The one thing I'd say try and do is get all of your customer data into one place. And it isn't necessarily on you to do that, but find the people who have been trying to do it for a while. There'll be someone in IT and someone in marketing and people have probably been trying to do it for a long time if it doesn't exist and help them get it done. Because really all the best customer experiences these days are as a result of having that, that really hard work of getting a customer data into one place done and correct and in a state that the business agrees it's legit. Uh, that would be my number one tip is if your data's not in one place, like I referred to those 27 teams before all stepping over each other, your customers are dealing with one company. They're not dealing with 27 teams. So give them the one company experience and really that has to happen by having data in one place and having one conversation around the customer. Great. Okay. I, um, look, you know, I think there's so much that I'm going to go through on this talk. Like, um, I think you've offered up some really interesting tactical and sort of uh, high level, top level strategic approaches with CX. So I think that's great. Um, you know, maybe just a bit about you personally now, like, um, what books are you reading right now that you recommend other people read? Oh, I'm a huge fan of stoic philosophy. Uh, so I'll say everything by Ryan holiday, read it. It's amazing. Uh, it's a nice, gentle beginning into philosophy proper if you haven't studied philosophy. Uh, I personally studied, I started studying philosophy when I was about 25, you know, 25, midlife crisis, what is it all about? And started reading uh, Marcus Aurelius back in the day. I was such a huge nerd. I love studying. So I went to Sydney Uni to study philosophy because I love it. Um, and And just thinking about what you can and can't control. Like you might see that as a nice meme on Instagram, like, oh, only worry about the things you can control. Well, where did you think that comes from? Like it comes from Aristotle. It comes from people who have solved these problems thousands of years ago. So you know what? Like read what they've said because they, they know things. Uh, so definitely you'll always find stoic philosophy happening uh, on my very large reading pile. Uh, and the other thing I literally just got in the mail today so there's, um, I'm very much into design and trend hunting and future casting. I like to, like, how do these people come up with what's happening next? I find that quite fascinating. So there's a dude who runs a website called Trend Hunter and he, he's basically renowned for being able to future cast. Oh, okay, cool. You know, so I've got his book at the moment. Jeremy Gooch is his name. Oh, nice. And it's two books. One, Innovation Handbook and Create the Future. So I'm going to create the future apparently after I read this book. So they're my two things at the moment. So Sounds all ambitious. about the future, yeah. I like it. Oh, you know, I'll do that tomorrow. It'll be fine. <laughs> you were talking about saving links and bookmarks. Uh, what about, um, you know, what's your favorite website that you recommend other people to bookmark and, and, and visit? Mark Manson. I'm his biggest fan. Mark, if you're out there. Uh, I love, but people think subtle art of not giving a fuck is this flippant thing, but it's actually like life advice. It's pretty good. And his research is spectacular. Um so yes, I love not giving a fuck. And uh, his more recent book, um, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. It's actually not about everything being fucked. It's actually about how do you tackle the things that are fucked that come at you? Oh, well, I'm swearing. Too bad I'm not allowed to. Um, and how do you handle it? And it does use a lot of stoic philosophy as well. So Mark, Mark's website, but he has a subscriber newsletter, which is called Motherfucking Monday. 
ESOS War again, and he tackles a pertinent topic. So this week was all about like the Black Lives Matter issue, and his perspective is 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 brilliant. You know, so he actually ended up publishing it this week. So go have a look for it. Um, but yeah, Mark Manson all the way. That's great. I've I've started reading his book. It sort of reminds me a bit of like a rehash in a modern context. Um, Stoic philosophy plus Tim Ferriss four hour work week. It's sort of a mix match of that with some personal psychology thrown on top of there. Yeah, absolutely. His 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 reference lists are interesting to just go through and just figure out where if you're interested in those kind of topics, where to go next. Just pick up a te- pick up a, a Mark Manson book and just look in the back of each chapter. Uh, his referencing is spectacular. So that's how, I, that's how I used to research um, really good uh, assignments at university. I'd go through one really good article and then you see all the references in that article yeah. and then you go to those journals and then you'd read those and then it's like a little web, right? It's so easy. All right. Yeah. yeah, well, back in the days when I first went to university, obviously it was a while ago, I actually had to go to a physical library and actually had to like photocopy things because the internet didn't exist. But now that the internet does exist, like literally the entire world is in your hand. You've got no excuse to not know things if you want to. See, I was in that hybrid phase of between they had electronic systems where they're pretty elementary. So it was like, it was a bit of both. So I suppose I can... Google didn't exist when I... (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) I'm looking forward to starting starting, starting a master's shortly in business and psychology. And I'm looking forward to having the internet at my disposal this time. I think it'll be easier. Big time. Okay, so what about a piece of tech that you can't do without in your daily life? My piece of tech is sitting right in front of me. I've got it at the ready because I knew you were going, knew you were going to ask me. Uh, favorite thing is um, my iPad Pro with Notability app. And I'm not going to give you a massive like demo, but whoever uses it just knows what I'm talking about. Is this the new the one? The reason it's all... Yeah, that's the new one. Is this it's the super one with or not? Sorry, the one with... Does it have LiDAR? It has all the things. Whatever the latest one is. Go to the Apple Store now. Okay. It's that one. Okay. Okay. I love it because it's a true replacement for a notebook. And I love stationery. Like behind my computer here, there's just pens and notebooks and like all kinds of like paper. Um, but this is the true replacement for being able to capture your life digitally. And so all the different things that I'm involved in, it's just in another folder and I literally can carry everything around. Um, so this has replaced a PC for me. Uh, this is my personal one, but I use it at work. And, you know, to be able to be in a meeting and snap a quick picture on off the whiteboard and quickly send it to yourself, annotate it up, send it on, drop it into Confluence, there, you know, it's finished in two minutes. It's a pretty powerful tool. What about on the software side then? You know, there's something like little apps or something you could talk to people that, uh, you know, it would be really handy for the, their work? Oh, notably, obviously, for writing, um, but I've recently started doing a little how to paint on your iPad course, and I'm using a combination of Adobe Sketchbook and Procreate. So I'm going to say at the outset, I've been doing this for about a week now, so I'm no expert, but they're both awesome, but for different things. Uh, So I'm looking forward to being a digital artist uh, once I've finished mastering them. Oh, very nice. Um, well, uh, what about speaking promotions and then plugs? Um, this is your time to, you know, give the listeners um, a heads up about what you're working on. Um, what do you want to promote? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the future, in the future, um, I see myself more as a consultant in CX. So I am launching a, a consultancy CX consulting and it's going to be about 
do you want something small, medium or large fixed? So that's, that's coming soon. And uh, the second thing is I'm doing another podcast with PMI's Projectified podcast and I'm going to be covering accessibility. So one of the other umbrellas under CX is accessibility. So not just physical accessibility like wheelchairs in buildings, uh, but digital accessibility. So that's coming up in August. Well, that sounds great. I mean, um, I know a lot of my colleagues are done on PMI's courses, so that's that's great. Uh, I'm a member of a Prince Two person, but only just because it was legacy. So, oh, I both, I both, you know. Yeah, <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> uh, what about um, say some people are really interested in what you've said today? Um, you know, what's the best way to contact you without you know annoying you? Oh no, just drop me a note on LinkedIn. I'll get back to anyone who wants to reach out and say hi or ask a question or maybe understand some more about stoic philosophy. I'm open to all ideas. Perfect. That sounds great. Okay. Well, I'm going to put your LinkedIn um, profile and the links of, of these comments as well. So uh, everyone can find it very easily, but um, look, that was everything. So um, I really enjoyed that talk. Um, I could really connect with what you were saying at a lot of those points. Obviously your knowledge of six is way beyond, you know, my more elementary view, but I really like some of the things, practical takeaways that um, people could, could do tomorrow after listening to this. So um, really appreciate your time, um, Catherine. And um, thanks for being the first female on my show as well. Um, I, I did my list of interviewers and then I noticed that like 99% were male. So I, I made a change yeah. and you're the, one of the first ones I spoke to. So that's great. Obviously I've set an extremely high standard. No, but if you'd like some more friends of mine you'd like to chat with, I'll send you a list. Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. So, um, yeah, thanks again. And um, I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks. Bye. Wow, that was one hell of a ride. And true to her word, Catherine didn't hold back. I loved how practical she got during her interview while all the time drawing the discussion back to a solid strategic and structured foundation. And I love hearing from people who have been at the front lines and worked their way up. Their bluntness is so refreshing when talking about a topic that can become quite fluffy very quickly. She's definitely someone who leverages her extensive foundational knowledge of formal project management and theoretical models, but then is able to translate this into the practical confines of being inside a business, always with her eye on the bottom line. As an executive or senior manager, her story about GMs going out of their way to call customers is something I think every organization should implement today and be all the better for it. This episode is the perfect lead into the next with Edgar, who is a financial brand strategy expert. And after interviewing him, I noticed there was quite a lot of crossover with some of the topics and areas they were diving into. So when you have time, make sure you listen to Edgar's episode too. Similar to Catherine, he cuts right through the BS of branding worlds and leverages his financial and mathematical background to tell us exactly what to focus on and what to ignore. Both of these episodes are not for the faint of heart, especially if you're holding on to some legacy notions or afraid of tying your work back to the bottom line. But I enjoyed them both immensely. I'm looking forward to the next interview and just on that note actually, one of the most famous CMOs in the world just agreed to be a guest. So make sure you join the mailing list for alerts. But for now, that's a wrap. Take care and I'll see you again soon. Just a few things before you take off. Remember to sign up to the e-newsletter so you are alerted before anyone else when the next episode drops. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and don't be afraid to say hello or give me some constructive feedback. Also, visit the blog page of this podcast to view all the links and other material referenced in this episode. Thanks again for listening.